We have Professor Michael Murphy. He's going to talk. He's the Director of Catholic Studies and the Director of Loyola's Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage. He's the author of A Theology of Criticism, Balthazar, Postmodernism, and the Catholic Imagination. And he's going to give us a talk, notes on the Catholic Imagination. So if you could help me welcome him. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks a lot. So glad to be here. Um, let me get my notes out. I'm going to be a little more um, anchored to a script than my uh, predecessors were today. Uh, and that's probably for several reasons. I'll, probably, I'll uh, read. I like to kind of have things just so with my sentence crafting. Uh, but then I'll kind of make some comments as well. Um, so I say, you feel good. And it's not nap time, is it? After lunch? Sometimes on a Saturday I'll nap after lunch. So maybe um, I was going to say we can do some yoga, you know, uh, or Catholic yoga. You know, a lot of folks think that Catholic, you know, Catholics don't do yoga, but I mean, think about it. You know, when we go to mass, we sit down, we get up, we kneel, get up, hold hands, turn to your neighbor, pray, lift up your hearts. So, um, but I hope you feel energized and ready for uh, another lecture. We've had two beauties of a lecture. I want to thank. Uh, Megan and Father Karchi for their uh, insights. Uh, well, here we are. So this is my talk, uh, Images and Likenesses, Notes on a Catholic Imagination. And let's kind of get right to it. Huh. So last spring, this was at the Met. It caused quite a stir. Did you see this at all last spring at all, by chance? OK, so Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination. I mean, who knew? Uh, a lot of people actually knew, uh, but, how, but how suddenly hip the Catholic imagination had become last spring. You know, what's it all about? Well, there's Cardi B. And is that Jeff Scott? Do I have that right? Do you know who this, this person is, Jeff Scott? And then there's uh, King Tom and Giselle. Just, this is before the Super Bowl, but like if they ask him, hey, where are you going with you won the Super Bowl? You know, usually they say Disneyland. He said, I'm going to the museum. Um, so, but what are they doing there? Well, it's, it was a big thing that um, the Pontifical Council for, for Culture was involved in out of Rome, uh, Cardinal Ravazzi's unit, and the, uh, the local ordinary, Cardinal Dolan, had worked with the Met to look at the effects influence that Catholic imaginations had on uh, a lot of things, but they wanted to see fashion. So they wanted to make it a big gala and so on, so there was all kinds of, you know, cl clerics, priests, sisters were there, uh, Cardinal Dolan was there, uh, Cardinal Ravazzi was there, and then all these kind of stars. Um, and, you know, here's one here. I mean, that's Katy Perry, right? So if, you know, many Catholics were like, oh, this is pretty interesting. We are our influence has impacted the culture in very real ways. You know, we're, we are of smells and bells and a kind of a tactile tradition. The body is very important. Uh, you know, physicality is very important. All of our kind of, um, you know, the, a way through God is through, as St. Thomas, Thomas would say, uh, you know, you kind of beat on matter to find the spirit in it, that nature builds on grace. But is that what this is? So a whole other crowd of Catholics was like, this is kind of sacrilegious. It's very insulting to Catholics. And so, you know, like a lot of things, we hold these things in tension. But um, the Catholic imagination was in the water as far as a topic. And, 
you know, I just want to start there to say, like, you know, this is a place uh, uh, for us to think about it. Uh, a person who wrote the, the most astute essay about the intellectual part of the Catholic imagination uh, is actually a professor here. I think he's emeritus now, but uh, uh, Professor David Tracy. And in the big art book that goes along with this exhibit, there's a, there's a really first-class essay on the Catholic imagination that transcends these kind of fashionistas. So uh, it is interesting, uh, you know, with my topic to uh, suggest that. I'd like you know, to free associate, though, uh, and just, you know, if I say the word imagination to you, uh, what words do you think of, right? What concepts pop into your mind? Other associations. So let me just, just shout them out. Imagination. Dragons, right? M musical group or dragons. <laughs> uh, what else do you think of? Fiction. Dragons and fiction. Imagination. Creativity, excellent. Imagination. Sorry? In the pink there, what's your name? Laura. Hi, Laura, what, what, what's your name? Innovation. Oh, innovation, all right. Couple more? Come with me and you'll see. Anybody? Beauty. Beauty, that's wonderful. What's your name? Lizzie. Lizzie, thank you. Okay, well, my plan today is to introduce you to this very rich, but often very misunderstood concept of a Catholic imagination. Um, part of it is, you know, complex. So you'll be encountering some, you know, choice academic language. Um, you know, we had, uh, what did Megan use as uh, doxa, doxatastic, no, dox, doxatic, doxastic, you know, out of doxa. Uh, something like that. You're going to hear some of these words as we go through. Um, but it's good for you to get stretched this way, right? And as Father Karchu was saying, you know, we, we kind of are sometimes too light in our expectations of students. I, my, my experience is if you raise the bar, the students keep, kind, keep going to it. So we're, I'm not going to dumb this down, right? This is, this is a, a lecture I would give in a university class or graduate school. Um, so uh, you'll be stretched a little bit, um, and it's good to be stretched. Uh, you know, if maybe you can note something, a word or two, you can look it up later. That's, you know, uh, why we have books and all kinds of search engines. So, um, but most of what you're going to experience this morning is uh, natural and intuitive, and you're going to get it. So I have some good examples for you to consider. I'm going to share those in a while. But before we, you know, kind of dig in, I want to kind of associate with, with imagination. This one here um, comes from, this is some lines from a 1993 play called Six Degrees of Separation was also made into a movie starring Will Smith. Um, John Guar is the playwright, Catholic guy, kind of a 21st century Catholic, uh, but nonetheless. And he, in the, in the, um, in the play, uh, the character, Will, Will's character, is kind of a troubled youth. He's a fractured uh, person. He's um, insightful and bright, but he's also kind of broken, kind of devious, and he's kind of an operator. So he's a con man in a lot of ways. Uh, so he's got these qualities that maybe some of us have. You know, we're kind of this complex creature. We're kind of, you know, this com complex uh, saintly and uh, nobility. But we also have kind of a weakness where we're, you know, all too venal and all too kind of uh, sinful. So, um, but what he's meditating on in this uh, moment of the, of the film and the play 
is the imagination. And he's been reading um, uh, Catcher on the Rye. Who's read Catcher on the Rye? Okay, still gets some play. It's an old, you know, it's now 60, 70, 70 years old maybe. Uh, but it was like the go-to um, Bildungsroman novel, the novel of initiation for a youth from innocence to experience, Holden Caulfield. Now in Holden's world, he's a prep school guy in the Upper East Side, uh, and uh, everybody's a phony, right? That's the, that's the word in, in, in Holden. You know, bourgeois, middle class, everybody's full of it, and they're phony and no one really gets it, right? So um, he also seems to, and, but Holden has his own problems too. And Holden's limiting people uh, also projects where he's deficient. So what Will uh, Smith's character does is saying that Holden kind of lacks imagination. So then he goes off from here and he says, imagination has been so debased uh, that imagination, being imaginative, uh, rather than being the linchpin of our existence, now stands as a synonym for something outside ourselves like science fiction, or some new use of tangerine slices on raw pork chops. What an imaginative summer recipe. Or Star Wars, so imaginative. And Star Trek, so imaginative. And Lord of the Rings, all those dwarves, so imaginative. Well, and then he breaks and pauses and says, the imagination has moved out of the realm of being our link, our most personal link with our inner lives and the world outside that world, this world we share. I believe, though, he finishes, that the imagination is the passport we create to take us into the real world. So if you got that down, you know, it's wonderful. The, pa the imagination is the passport we create. Um, it's our most personal link. Uh, the world we share, it takes us into reality. Um, it's more than that, though because the reason why it speaks to us so much as a faculty of intellection um, is because the almighty imaginer, the living God in whom we live and move and have our very being, has endowed human creatures with this faculty. God is an artist. Uh, you know, that's not all God is. God, you know, God is well, more than that. But one of the things God is, is an artist. And by virtue of God's total self-gift, uh, so are we. Um, ponder that one. If you've read any Thomas Aquinas, um, uh, as you should, and it takes a long time to um, understand St. Thomas, but the idea of connaturality is a key one, something you can look up later. It really brings us in a nearness, uh, in an image and likeness. We're not God, but that we, uh, we participate that way. Do you have a question? Uh, connaturality, C-O-N-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-I, naturality. Yeah, you'll get it. Um, so here we go. The Catholic imagination is a little more than what Will Smith is going to say or John Guar is going to write, although it's really helpful. The Catholic imagination, with its diverse expressions of creativity and its compassed epistemologies of receptivity, refers to the creative faculty endowed to creatures for critical, contemplative, and intellectual engagement, again, with the living God. It is a habit of making and seeing with a long tradition to consider and to continually retrieve. To follow its most articulate commentator, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's a theologian, he never used this term explicitly, but his whole theology is all about this. Uh, the Catholic imagination is implicit in any theological aesthetics. 
another $10 word. Theological aesthetics is really quite basic. It is uh, the arts of the beautiful that find their inspiration and in their, their very being in a, in a theology. So um, uh, it's a sensory manifestation of the invisible at its most basic level. In any case, um, you know, Balthazar looked at it in terms of styles, clerical and lay styles. So there's the, there's the, the clerical styles of the, of the saints and professed religious, you know, in the, in the kind of the churchy way. So you have someone like St. John of the Cross as a certain aesthetic style when he's writing his poetry about the dark night. That's a, that could be a clerical style. But then someone like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald may have a lay style, or someone like Flannery O'Connor, who you'll, you'll meet in a second, has a lay style, a literary style. God gives us all in our giftedness certain talents and gifts to cultivate styles. So this is really uh, important, styles of creativity, prayer and prayer and prose and poetry, in scientific reflection as well. There's so many ways to, to do this. And this becomes, uh, becomes inseparable, this imagination and its um, performance of it, from unique divine mission, is how Balthazar puts it, that this imagination and the expression in our own way is our unique divine mission, more than a role we play, but a necessary thing for the world to be, um, what? Full of God's love. So it's no small thing. Um, uh, you know, while there are scores and styles to encounter, behold, the Catholic imagination is most penetrating and fruitful when organized around key attributes and qualities. Some are cultural, some are critical, you know, scholarly, others are theological. Of course, my background is, is I'm first a literary scholar, then I was a great books scholar, then I was kind of a more English studies, and I went into deeper theology, so I do systematic theology and literary studies. So I began to see, you know, in fiction and film and poetry, theological ideas. And for me, they spoke louder. Mm, this is tough. I love to read, you know, systematic prose, but then I want to see it uh, enlivened in film and in plays and in, in dramatized, that the arts could speak just like a theological or philosophical tract could, you know, that would they'd be mutually beneficial. So, but there really is, is lynched on all these kind of attributes and qualities um, that are usually theological, otherwise it can't be really a Catholic imagination. Uh, so, you know, one of the main kind of attributes would be something like the incarnation. So you'd say, ah, you know, what is the incarnation? Well, it's a historical event that's happening right now. But, you know, it's, it's the enfleshment of God, the second person of the Trinity. But what does that mean? And if you kind of start looking at art in a certain way, that something's incarnational, that uh, has an understanding of a of humans, uh, you know, created beauty and humans' participation in kind of a salvific moment. And the great drama of our lives is, means something quite physically. It's not just an idea. It's, an incar it's in incarnational. So I developed you know, a, bunch of, you know, a list of all these attributes and qualities that, you know, kind of come from these mysteries. So I'll just name a couple, then I'll move along. But like the idea of a revelation and concealment, it's kind of like the incarnation. God reveals God's self, you know, and lo, you know, certainly historically in Jesus, but then that incarnational moment, God reveals God's self today, right now. Um, I'm not speaking for God, but like, if there's something you can take away in a, in, a, in a receptivity of grace from some truth that I speak in the name of the God who, who makes us, that's a, that's a physicality, that's a historical moment. Or some nice handshake or a hug 
or this morning when you woke up and your sister was crying and you gave her a little hug. That's an incarnational moment of God's great love. So, um, you know, it's very, very basic. But in that revelation, sometimes, too, things get concealed. It's an old dynamic. God reveals. You're like, oh, I get God now. And then God, then you, you don't get God, right? God reveals, like, here's an imprint. I see it. And then where's God, <laughs> right? I had it for a second, and then it's gone. So, you know, and in the Gospels, too, Jesus does that all the time. He's like, oh, you see me, right? Oh, yeah, I am the Messiah. Don't tell anybody, <laughs> Right? How many times has that happened? It's like, reveal, conceal. There's lots of reasons why that is. It's almost rhetorical. But, um, so something like that's part of a Catholic imagination. Another part of it would be a theology of pilgrimage. Right? The idea that we're on a journey and that we're going somewhere. Right? We have a telos or a telos that our lives are ordered toward you know, something. You know, it's not just random stuff that we're here. We're born. We have kind of a mission. We have a journey. We walk with each other. And we learn along the way. Right? Um, and we... You know, uh, and this kind of thinking kind of flies in the face of lots of contemporary thought, which thinks, you know, that life's a utopia, that, that pr- it's all about progress, 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 and progress is important, but, you know, kind of Christian progress and secular progress are not always the same thing. So, you know, we, we know that, um, you know, but these notions of, you know, journey toward perfectibility, they kind of strangle us in lots of ways because they make too, there's too much expectation and they don't allow for what? fallibility, mistake, forgiveness, mercy, sinfulness, that's all very natural to us. So a Catholic imagination understands pilgrimage. I mean, the closest thing to religion we get in America besides, you know, religion would be what? Uh, consumerism, right? Would that be our religion? That was one of them. Disneyism, right? Do you believe in Disney, right? Well, if you take Disney, I mean, take any Disney movie you want to think of, it's the same plot, is it not? It just changed the culture, changed the, you know, fish or Simba or Nemo. But it's the same thing, right? You're there, life's going well, then something happens, you fall apart, you have to go on your own, you make new friends, da-da-da-da. Pilgrimage, pilgrimage, right? Heroes or heroine's journey. So, but really, really finds its life in, in, uh, in Catholic life, too. Also, you know, maybe you have this, too. I know there's, you're, you're good Catholic uh, school kids, so... Have you learned about the transcendentals yet, what they are? Let's hear them. Who knows the transcendentals? Go ahead. Um, Ralph oh, he's a transcendentalist. Okay. What are the philosophical transcendentals? Anybody know those? Go ahead. Hey, let's hear it for beauty, tooth, and goodness. Anybody? <laughs> those are the things that will get you out of bed in the morning. Beauty, truth, and goodness, right? Um, I hope so. Uh, I don't want to go too far into what they are because you can take a long time, but these are the things that kind of transcend quite naturally. Every culture has an understanding of beauty. Every culture has a value of truth. Every culture has a value of, uh, of uh, what, beauty, truth, and goodness, the good. So, you know, uh, then you go from to culture, you get into kind of, you know, into things you can't see is spirit and, and God. So, you know, think about those. It is true that out of the three transcendentals, uh, the imagination and the arts seem to deal with beauty. And beauty, you know, is, you know, you said beauty um, here, Lizzie, uh, a second ago. That's, I mean, beauty, think about that. I mean, uh, you can go from Dostoevsky, who says beauty will save the world. Whoa. I sometimes think that's it, because I don't know if, you know, politics will save the world. Um, I don't know if militarism or, 
you know, institutionalism. But I, I, it seems to me beauty will save the world, and certainly love's tied to beauty. Uh, Father Barron, or I should say Bishop Barron, um, he calls beauty the arrowhead of, evangel- of evangelism. Is the beauty, so you get into someone's orbit by sharing what you think is beautiful. So, um, you know, there's that. And my brief remarks will follow. Um, I want to focus on, uh, you know, one of these, the main attributes. And what I want to uh, focus on is this thing called the complexio oppositorum, complex of opposites, the complexio oppositorum. Um, if we think about it, it illustrates habits of creation in artists and interpretation in those of us who look at the arts. Um, in an orienting insight offered by Notre Dame's president, uh, Father John Jenkins, at a conference I was at, Father Jenkins mused this. He said, the primary feature of being a Catholic is to hold two completely opposite things up together and to proceed as if they are not opposite. To hold two opposite things up together and to proceed as if they're not opposite. That sounds a lot like Megan's Chesterton quote that she had on the... Um, What's the last line of that quote? It's the two contraries. Yeah, it takes like the greater. I'll look it up. No, it's, it's, it's two contraries. Yes, thanks. Two contraries, and that you take the but you all, you know you, you take the two truths, but you take the contrary as well. Yeah. So that the Catholic imagination can, can do that. You know, if you think about it, and this 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 talk really is about that. So um, you know, thinkers as as disparate in location as pseudo Dionysus, who's the sixth century, a great mystical kind of monk. And Michel de Certeau, a Jesuit, very ur- urbane, who's 20th century, they have the complex of opposites at front and center in their thinking because finding its dynamism uh, helps us understand infinite concepts uh, like the incarnation. And this is where they become more understandable to people. Not solvable, but more deeply understood. The greatest teacher of this uh, complexio oppositorum was a guy named. Nicholas of Cusa from the 15th century, who was a German theologian and polymath, and he articulated that the dynamic as the co- coincidentia positorum, you know, again, the coincidence of opposites, whereas Cusanus scholar H. Lawrence Bond, a guy you should uh, maybe look up to, Bond says this, this is really quite well, quite well put, it is not a question of seeing unity where there is no real contrariety, nor is it a question of forcing harmony by synthesizing resistant parties. Coincidence as a method issues from coincidence as fact or condition that is resolved in and by infinity. So his arc is much longer than our kind of immediate rational arcs that are important. But when you get to paradox and and, and the, the collision of opposites, you're on a different kind of scale. So again, that can be kind of, um, you know, too abstract for us. So you can notice we're kind of well beyond math here. And even if there's something of a quantum physics in what I just said, and we get back to our lives in God, there's the world of math, and then there's a world of grace. They're not necessarily opposed, but oftentimes they can collide and bring us to new, to new places. Um, sometimes all the facts we have don't add up to the truth. And I think we've all been there. Um, and I'm saying this as a person who loves facts and truth. Uh, the, coincidence of, the coincidence of opposites, excuse me, to, in, to integrate the famous subspecies of uh, dialectical and analogical imaginations located by Dr. Tracy from UFC, um, and it's always part of this conversation, 
These things transcend even these categories. So for Cusanus, Nicholas, uh, the coincidentia positorum, because it discerns intelligibility precisely as coincidence as fact, overcomes both dialectical approaches, which uh, Tracy thinks Protestants favor, and the analogical favored in Catholic traditions, and therefore exceeds the limits not only of discursive cause and effect reasoning, but even the resolutions of metaphor and synthesis so prized by the theological and philosophical traditions of Western thought. Now that's the hardest concept I'll give you in this, in this, in this talk. But you'll get this. What's dialectical? Sometimes it's God is absolute difference. Two kind of unleaded ideas that sometimes can come together in dialogue, but you know, radical difference, dialectical. What's analogical? Similarity in difference, right? So um, the Catholics favor the analogical because the Catholic uh, kind of intellectual tradition um, kind of looks at the incarnation and starts to say, oh, there's a linkage to the infinite in this historical moment that we can kind of perceive and reason toward, never quite grasp, but we, we don't say God is absolutely other because God has become one of us, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Right? So there's a place to start in the historical person of Jesus. So, you know, I often lament, you know, back in the day when I was in high school, we had an analogy section on the, on the SAT, and they got rid of it. And I think it's been the death of much thinking since that happened about 20 years ago. But that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, you can't really do all this unless you have an example. So here we go. I'm going to start with my examples now so you can kind of get this, uh, you know, to where we need to be. Um, let me just do one thing. So, you know, why do you do examples? Again, uh, follow the great teacher. Uh, how did Jesus teach? I mean, we, it's just the first thing that comes off your tongue. Why did he do that? Right? You'd say like, um, hey, Dad, uh, how do I forgive somebody? And your dad might say, well, you know, do this, do this, do this. That's good advice. And what does Jesus do? He'll tell you a story. And what does it do for the hearer of the word? It gives texture and complexity and liberty and creativity, and it, it takes you someplace. All these faculties are, this is what the Catholic imagination does. It, it, it has you inhabit a space to where you can really you know, begin to experience. It demonstrates, it performs. This is what this wants to do. So, uh, you know, I'm talking about the coincidence of opposites, the navigating opposites. I want to give you a poem, uh, an experience of a poem that um, hopefully will demonstrate that. So let me get my act together here. <clears throat> All right. All right. This is City Psalm by Denise Levertov from 1964. Let me get my beats right. Okay. The killings continue. Each second, pain and misfortune extend themselves in the genetic chain. Injustice is done knowingly, and the air bears the dust of decayed hopes. Yet breathing those fumes, walking the thronged pavements among crippled lives, 
jackhammers raging, a parking lot painfully agleam in the May sun. I have seen, not behind, but within, within, within the dull grief, blown grit, hideous concrete facades, another grief, a gleam as of dew in abode of mercy, have heard not behind but within, noise, a humming that drifted into a quiet smile. Nothing was changed, all was revealed otherwise. Not that horror was not, not that the killings did not continue, not that I thought there was to be no more despair, but that, as if transparent, all disclosed in otherness that was blessed, that was bliss. I saw paradise in the dust of the street. Well, hopefully that gave you something to think about. You know, something kind of like that takes it to another level. And why does it speak to us if it does? Let me get this back to the screen here. Why does it speak to us if it does? Anybody want to respond to what they just saw there? Did that work for you? Is it something you enjoy? Or Anybody want to respond to that? Are you normally a, a poetry fan? Right. Did you like it with maybe a little... You know, poetry is meant to be read. Did you like it with a little music on top? So maybe it could be this creatureliness that we talk about. And you know, if you remember what um, you know, what does Catholic mean? Um, what does Catholic mean? Yeah, we always say universal, and that's true. But it's even more kind of like, like a verb. It means like seeking after the whole, accounting for the whole. And so you know. Is any surprise that when we want to experience something, we want to experience it totally uh, with all of our senses. A holism, that word holism, holistic, comes from the same word, H-O-L. The, the H-O-L in Catholic is, is holism. So, you know, this, um, this both-and orientation, I'm trying to say that we saw in this poem here, that that moment when something is just mundane and then it hits you that something is deeper is going on there. Have you had that experience in your life when you're just like, okay, Tuesday afternoon, and you're like, oh my gosh, I understand forgiveness now, right? Or like a story I tell when I was on retreat when I was in eighth grade, and my sister and I, who's older, she's, she, I was in eighth grade, she's a senior in high school, and she was just a pain in my, you know what, always fighting with me and bothering me, and da 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 And then I'm on retreat, you know, and then we were all surprised our family showed up. It was a two-hour drive, and my sister has, has no time. My sister was a socialite city, right? She has no time on a Saturday afternoon for for me, little old me, right? And next thing I know, I see, boom, who's there? My family, my sister with a big smile on her face and gives me a big hug. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're my sister. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, you know, I know I live with you and you're like driving me crazy, but you're my lifelong family. You're my sister. And that's just like, you know, this thing where it turns over. And Levertov's poem, a little more stark, right? She's in the middle, could be Chicago, could be, 
you know, it could be, you know, just the, 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 the pain of violence, the atrocity, the, the, um, just the heartbreak, but then some redemptive act in that, in that ugliness is too strong, but in that, in that trial, some redemptive, some, some goodness, some grace, and it's held together, you know, again, two opposite things, not opposite. That's the Catholic imagination. So, you know, let me ground it further, another bit of uh, art. Um, and here's Flannery O'Connor. Do you know Flannery O'Connor? Raise your hand, Flannery O'Connor. Yay, Flannery. That's Miss Mary Flannery O'Connor to you. Um, so if you ever say Flannery O'Connor, they'll say, I love him. You know, it's, it's a woman, right? And, um, and she was born in Georgia in 1925 to kind of a really a, a famous kind of family, but their, their kind of luck had run out. They were rich and, and aristocratic, but then all of a sudden they were just you know, went down a step, and they're middle class, but they were no longer that um, as powerful as they were. So she had a farm in Georgia, and she grew up, and she was great. She was kind of this bookish girl, um, yearbook editor type, drew cartoons, smart as a whip, a lot of friends. And her, on her farm, they raised peacocks. Uh, her writing was really unusual, and she uh, got scholarships for it. The first picture there, she's at the uh, University of Iowa, the MFA program. Uh, one of the best, if not the best in America uh, for uh, fine arts and writing, it's elite. And so she got it, and she was there with her friends. She had the world before her, right? And she, and just on the top of the world, 23 years old, she gets a lupus diagnosis, lupus, and has to end up going home and living with her mother, Flannery and her mom, right, for the rest of her life. Uh, so she's on crutches there not long before her death in 1964. So she was 39 years old when she died. Um, to call her the best American short story writer would not be um, out of bounds. She, she's a craftsperson beyond belief. I just recommend you reading her. But your topics are going to be kind of strange. Um, but she's, a, she's also a very serious Catholic. And uh, she doesn't wear it on her sleeve, right? She does it through her art. And that's the best sign of an evolved Catholic imagination. So I'm going to read to you from uh, one of her last stories called Revelation. And, you know, the story is going to have this navigation of opposites right at its, at its center. Um, and, I'll, and I'll explain what, when I kind of get there. But what we have here, and you can see where it's right from Flannery's own life, is it's a, it's a doctor's office scene. Okay? Now, in those days, you didn't have phones or earphones. So, like, if you're in a doctor's office, it's just you and your fellow citizens, right? No one's in their own world. No one's on their phone. You're just looking around at each other, and you're people watching, right? And when you have that people watching, you learn things about people. And then people like me in the South, too, there's a very genteel society. Everybody's talking to each other quite openly. Everybody's sharing opinions, too, right? And so you start, like, you know, judging people. Like, oh, my God, and you're in your head, you know, that voice in your head. You're like, I wish you'd just shut up, you know, like... Uh, she's so judgy or something. So this is who we have here, is Ruby Turpin, and she's a gentlewoman. She has a farm, a pig farm, and she's just satisfied with herself, right? But we find with Ruby Turpin that she's really got some cracks in her. And how does she find out? Well, what O'Connor calls an advent of a gracious catastrophe, right? Where Ruby's world is opened up by um, uh, an act of, like, violence, basically, so who's in this um, waiting room? And a waiter, waiting room is always good, too, for lots of reasons. You know, you can even, like, learn a lot about purgatory in a waiting room. <laughs> you know, this is like, oh, my God, will this never end? And, you know, 
who these people I'm with. Uh, um, and so she, Ruby's looking around and she's judging everybody. Like, oh, here's a well-heeled white lady. Oh, there's a black farmhand and she uses the N-word because that's what you did in the South in the, in the 50s. And here's this white trash person and here's this. She has them all ordered in her hierarchy about where they belong, right? And, you know, it's all neat and dandy. So this is where we kind of like pick up the story and I'm going to try to do a little dramatic reading for you, so forgive me if I don't do it right, but I'm going to try. Um, so, if it's one thing I am, um, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself, and what all I got, a little of everything, and a good disposition besides, I feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making, making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got Claude, her husband. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, Jesus. Out loud, she's saying this in the room. The book struck her directly. Where's this book coming from? Well, Mary Grace is in the waiting room. She's very nervous. She's down from Wellesley College. You know Wellesley? She's down from Wellesley. She's had kind of a nervous semester. Her mother's worried about her, and she's at the doctor. It could be a Flannery O'Connor person, like, but she's a very observant young woman, and she's had about enough of Mrs. Turbin, right? And so, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, Jesus. And she throws a book on human development, one of those big psych books on human development. You hear me? Whoa! Boom! That would hurt, right? Ruby's on the ground. The book struck her directly over her left eye. <clears throat> it struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it at her. Before she, she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table toward her, howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps, the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out and Claude shout, Whoa! There was an instant when she was certain that she was about to be in an earthquake writes Flannery. All at once, this is a vintage Flannery here, her vision narrowed and she saw everything as if it were happening in a small room far away, or as if she were looking at it through the wrong end of a telescope. Claude's face crumpled and fell out of sight. The nurse ran in, then out, then in again. Then the gangling figure of the doctor rushed out of the inner door. Magazines flew this way and that way. A table was turned over. The girl fell with a thud. And Mrs. Turpin's vision suddenly reversed itself, and she saw everything large instead of small. The eyes of the white, trashy woman were staring hugely at the floor. There, the girl held down on one side by the nurse, and on the other side by her mother, was wrenching and turning in her grasp. The doctor was kneeling astride her, trying to hold her arm down. He managed, after a second, to sink a long needle into it. Mrs. Turpin felt entirely hollow, except for her heart, which swung from side to side, as if it were agitated in a great empty drum of flesh. Somebody that's not busy, call for the ambulance, the doctor said uh, in the offhand voice young doctors adopt for a terrible occasions such as these. Mrs. Turpin could not have moved a finger. The old man who had been sitting next to her had skipped nimbly into the office and made the call. The secretary still seemed to be gone. Claude, Claude, Mrs. Turpin called. He was not in his chair. She knew she must jump up and find him, but she felt like someone was trying to catch a train in a dream. 
when everything moves in slow motion, and the faster you try to run, the slower you go. Here I am, said Claude. He was doubled up on the corner, in the corner on the floor, pale as paper, holding his injured leg. The girl's eyes stopped, this is Mary Grace, stopped rolling and focused on her. They seemed much lighter blue than before, as if a door that had been tightly closed behind them was now open to admit light and air. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared and her power of motion returned. She leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes. There was no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her, knew her and know her in some intense and personal way beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me? She asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as if for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. She whispered. Her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment as if she saw with pleasure that her message had struck its target. I mean, you can't make this stuff up unless you're Flannery O'Connor, right? And what is going on here? This girl is obviously in a state, but what happens in the Catholic imagination is that somehow we're vehicles for grace, something wakes us up, some message gets heard, and now it works on Ruby in her own interior life because she needs work, and God loves her. O'Connor loves her characters. She doesn't hate Mrs. Turpin because God loves her characters. And so with, with Ruby... Later on in the day, she's home, and she's just turned over by all this. And she's, and she's watering down her pigs in the, in the pig parlor, and she yells to the sky, what you send me a message like that for? She's talking to God. There's no answer but the echo. How am I a hog and me both? Right? Navigating opposites. How am I, how am I you know, ask yourself this week the things you did well, but then you did some things probably, you, shouldn't, you, you know, some mistakes were made or some laziness or some other thing. How can I be all those things and then be all these things? This is what it means to live. And um, this is what's located in this fiction. So the end of the story, I don't want to ruin it for you, but Ruby is, has a vision. And the vision is the corrective of her prejudiced version of her upside-down hierarchy, right? In the, in the waiting room, she's like, I know where you go. I know where you go. I know where I go. I'm blessed by Jesus. Right? I will say something kind of judgmental here, which I'm, and I'm sorry about it, but I sometimes ask my friends that might be evangelical, how are you today? They'll say, I'm blessed. I'm saying, well, you know, <laughs> don't count your chickens. You know, like Catholic, we know that God loves us, but like to, to presume on that, you know, we know that, but like it's just kind of an odd sentence to, to say. Um, but what Ruby realizes is that in this vision she has, where she thought she was at the front of the train, she, forget, she forgets the gospel. She forgets the old, the last shall be first. So in her vision of going to heaven, she's occupying, and her husband, and all these people who are polite and follow all the rules and who are all good and, uh, you know, and who uh, know they're good, they're on the last, uh, the last rung. The ones beloved of God are the, the freaks and the outcasts and the marginalized. They're up there dancing hallelujah jigs uh, before her. So... As I kind of move to the last part of my uh, presentation, you know, uh, O'Connor understood this, uh, understands this kind of, uh, this, um, you know, coincidence of opposites. 
Um, so when we think about it in its practical sense, the Catholic imagination uh, functions as a tool for, again, holistic cognition. I too have a Chesterton quote, and in, in The Everlasting Man, um, Chesterton says, it's the imagination like our friend um, Will Smith's character from the play, um, it's the imagination that helps us to see what's there, that's the quote, and to see it with what uh, GKC says is unspoiled realism and wonder. That's the faculty of the imagination that does that. So uh, Adolfo Nicolás, who's the leader of the Jesuits, uh, he was until uh, last year, um, links imagination to the actual gospel and that it's a practice in Christianity uh, so vividly described in the Gospels itself by Jesus' very being. Nicholas not only insinuates this um, imagination as key to Christian understanding, but he also uh, kind of needles contemporary culture by saying that the imagination um, has a philosophical and theological power that we were often forgetting. It's careful analysis, he writes, for the sake of an integration, which is a remembering around what is deepest, God, Christ, and the gospel. Thus, uh, Nicholas illuminates a host of errant thinking and foul practice in one fell swoop. So um, I would say, you know, I, I want to kind of get to one more clip and uh, make sure we're on time. Uh, so I would say you can, you can read uh, uh, Nicholas on the imagination because it's very, very modern. And what he has to say is, is very helpful. He also refers to Walker Percy in another writing. And Walker Percy is really important because of this thing. Uh, that we're talking about, which is a, a wonder and awe in God's creation. What Percy writes is very, very um, instructive for us. Percy Wright wrote this in the early 80s. You live, we live, in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, man, people, have not the faintest idea of who they are, we are, or what we are doing. Right? So... Um, this, this tradition knows that things can be known. Um, and we know that science gets us there as in epistemology, but it's one tool in the toolbox, and we need to have all the tools. Things can be known, and God can be known intimately. You know, Graham Greene, another great writer, says, I don't believe in God. I mean, that's, he believes in God, but he, he wants to make a point. Um, I don't believe in God. I touch God, right? He is in relationship with God. It's, it's more than a, a rational, um, voluntary, uh, creedal statement, even though it's all those things. So um, let me get to this here. Uh, I want to give you one more example to, to close with so we can stay on time. And um, I think you might recognize it from your, your viewings. You're all familiar with um, Tolkien, right? Um, let me give you this real to situate it. So, and you're familiar with the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, so this is Mark's gospel, chapter 9, I think. <clears throat> and um, just before this uh, scene uh, is Jesus going head-to-head with Peter, right? And uh, they're on their way to Jerusalem for what uh, is going to be a busy week. <laughs> and... Um, and Jesus knows this. He has a mission. He has a telos. And he, Peter begins to learn. And Peter's saying, no, we don't have to go, Lord, or uh, Master, Rabbi. We don't have to go. Um, and Jesus says the famous line. Who knows what the line is? 
get thee, get thee behind me, Satan, right? That's strong language. But if you read it in Greek, and Satan is a real, is a real uh, phenomenon, reality, um, but if you read it in the Greek, it would say, get thee behind me, scandalon, which means impediment. Get thee behind me, impediment. And what's an impediment? That's the thing that, make, that gets in the way of your foot, right? So an impediment messes up your journey. So what he's saying to Peter is like, look, I have to go. This is the way it is. Step aside. That just happens. Just, and, and, and the thing is why, and Peter needs to understand, and he will understand, but it, you know, it takes him a while. But the next scene is this, this transfiguration scene. And so uh, this is the very next thing that we see. And I'll just read it. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain um, apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no, full, uh, no fuller on earth could bleach them. Wow, that's white. Uh, then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. What, what a scene this must have been. Then Peter uh, said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Nice, nice hospitality. And he hardly knew what to say. <laughs> they were so terrified. Um, then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. Now, you can imagine, right? You need an imagination. What that must have been like and all those things. And then Jesus pulls the old, uh, you know, as they were coming down the mountain, he, he said, don't tell anybody, right? Don't tell anybody. Um, so what is, what is going on here? Well, let's, let's see if we can take this transfiguration, this, this, you know, all of a sudden, just right there in the moment, you're one thing and then you're something more. And let's view it through this way. Um, so you remember uh, from uh, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, the, uh, the first one of the LTR tr uh, trio, that Gandalf, Graham, is, um, they're in the, in the mines of uh, Moria, and there's that, what's it called, a ba Balgoth? A Bal Balrog. Yeah, thank you. Woo! Um, and Gandalf is characteristically, protecting his uh, companions and you know, go without me. I may not make it. Uh, and then he says, you shall not pass, right? In the book, it's um, you cannot pass, which I, uh, they change it to you shall not. Anyway, so we have this, and then we, uh, Gandalf gets uh, nailed by a, a fire tentacle at the last minute and is drugged down to a deep, murky, um, you know, pond, and they fight for eight days, and he dies. Right, he dies, um, and then this happens. So let's watch this. This is kind of kind of wrapping up here. Uh, thank you. So this is the two towers. Gandalf is back. They. It's still kind of murky how he got there, what happened in the mines, and then we learn something here. What's happening in the scene here is that we're in real trouble as the, uh, as the battle is, is, is raging, and Theoden King, is, uh, who was an ally of uh, the, the, the men, um, it has been uh, under the intoxication, moral, spiritual, and otherwise, of bad counsel, um, worm tongue. 
and we'll learn some things here. So let's watch it. So this is the setting. Things are bleak and the fellowship is trying to make them less bleak. So here we go. Breathe the free air again, my friend, he closes with. Um, as I'm going to close here in a second after, just a little comment or two. Um, you see what's happening here. Now, it's, it's not, it would be cheap 
and Tolkien would not do this. Tolkien was an ardent Catholic from his youth. Um, and he's not like Lewis as one of his buddies, Lewis, part of the Inklings, fellow Oxford professor. Lewis is more allegorical, like symbolizing, you know, Aslan from the land of his world is, is like, Aslan's kind of a symbol of God the creator. And, but, uh, but Tolkien's way more sacramental, which is really important to this, to, to this uh, conversation. So it's not enough to say Gandalf's not Jesus, but the kind of transformative moments in this, you know, of transfiguration that happen in reality with the Messiah being uh, chief among them, but also affects our lives. And so we can learn from the transfiguration to look around us to see when things are deepened. Gandalf, when he comes back, when he's been killed, he's, a, he's, he's of an angelic order in, in Tolkien's world. He feels pain, he can die, but he's the spirit, he comes back, and he knows more when he comes back as Gandalf the White. And he's transfigured before his friend's eyes, and they know he's more. So there's something kind of biblical about that and something kind of uh, important. But there's other transfigurations that, are, that help us understand, and Tolkien master, masterfully puts them in this movie, and Peter Jackson is smart enough, the director, to, to use them. And so you have um, Theoden King of Rohan. What happened to him? He had a transfiguration of, an, of another variety. Listening to foul counsel of a trusted advisor pollutes him physically, spiritually, and to where he's not known and not free. That happens in our lives all the time. I know if you thought of someone right now who's being kind of intoxicated by some habit or bad practice, you know, maybe too much gaming or too much of one thing, and it's really changed, right? Oftentimes with, with me, I feel like I'm on technology too much, and I feel like it's changing me, transfiguring me in, in, a, in a negative way. So what happens to Theoden is he comes down this road, and he's in prison. Um, it takes a loving hand and a bit of truth to regain his freedom. You see how his transfiguration is kind of, you know, like a demon leaving him, and he's restored to himself, which also quite beautifully and mercifully can happen as well. More than an imagination, a reality. And if you've seen it, if you've seen someone who was locked in something come out of it, it's beautiful, right? And, um, and, it, and it, it happens in this faith, this tradition is alive and awake to that. So let me just close by saying the Catholic imagination is, is alive and well today. Uh, sure, it's celebrated at those Tony Galas in New York City where uh, guests arrive in uh, bejeweled ball gowns and all that. Um, such exercises in hybridity and appropriation in cultural production will always be with us. They're nothing new. Um, and really the sacred and profane inhabiting the same space is another one for the, for the uh, coincidence of opposites. Um, you know, the both and of Catholicism uh, looms large here, uh, but it can stand the heat too. Um, we're having this big Catholic Imagination Conference next fall at Loyola, and if you were to go on our website, uh, you'd be most welcome to come and, and talk about these things more deeply. We have all kinds of writers and poets of national renown coming to talk about how this uh, faith life informs their work. Um, but really, uh, these are vital and exciting days for the arts and for the Catholic imagination. And theologians and artists and critics are hard at work, for as Hans Urs von Balthasar observes well, the spirit is empowered to utter a fresh and central answer to every situation. Um, our task, friends, is to enter into that mystery at every opportunity with eyes, ours, sorry, eyes, ears, hearts, and minds uh, wide open, a well-formed Catholic imagination 
demands nothing less. Have a great afternoon. It's nice to meet you, and um, thanks for being here.